This forum is part of the City Club's Authors in Conversation series, sponsored by the John P. Murphy Foundation and by the residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful for their generous support. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here. Today's conversation is, is a critically important one. Over the last few weeks, our country has witnessed conflict unfold in Afghanistan. After decades of progress, many are left wondering what the future will hold for Afghan women. Today, we are joined at the City Club by Karen Sherman, author of Brick by Brick, building hope and opportunity for women survivors everywhere. Karen Sherman has spent her life advocating for women in war-torn and transitional countries such as Iraq, Afghanistan, Bosnia, Congo, Nigeria, Rwanda, South Sudan, Kosovo, and the former Soviet Union. Throughout her 30-year career in global development, she has met and interviewed thousands of women. Their stories are ones of strength, courage, resilience, resourcefulness, and they fuel what Karen Sherman believes to be true championing women's education and economic opportunities has the power to transform the lives of women, the future of families, communities, societies, and ultimately the world. Karen has spent her years in this work in field offices and boardrooms with leaders at all levels, including heads of state, ambassadors, business leaders, academics, and non-governmental organizations. Karen is now president of the Aquila Institute, Rwanda's only women's college. In her book, Karen uproots her family from Bethesda, Maryland, and moves to Rwanda for a year. There, she would oversee the construction of a center that would help women survivors of war. Her book chronicles her time there and tells the powerful stories of women who are rebuilding lives despite brutal challenges of war, genocide, and inequality. Guest members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Karen Sherman. Karen, thank you so much for being here today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I guess we should probably set the scene really quick and maybe tell us a little bit about the nature of the work that you do and uh, kind of how it's been going on over the last few years. Absolutely. Well, I have been working in global development for about 30 plus years, of course, dating myself, um, but really started working uh, in the former Soviet Union for about 15 years as the country collapsed and was transitioning. Um, it was really the women who were rebuilding the society and uh, became very enamored with what women could do with education and income to change their lives and in turn the lives of their families and communities. Um, after 15 years working in the former Soviet Union, primarily with women entrepreneurs who were driving the country's forward progress economically, I moved to working with a group called Women for Women International, which works with women survivors of war in conflict zones around the world, and really helped to transform our model from one of rights-based development to also really looking at women earning income and how that could change their lives, and really carried that work forward over the last almost eight years with the Aquila Institute. And 
What I love about this model is that it isn't just education, not that education is a bad thing, but education for education's sake, but one that really leads to economic outcomes for women. Um, because we find that the combination of education and income, those two things together are what's transformative. Yeah. So as you know, in the intro, we, we've talked about some of the locations where you have done some of your work, um, Kosovo, Bosnia, all these um, places that we know to have a lot of uh, conflict and challenges. And we often hear about child brides as being one of the huge issues that we see coming out of these countries. And in your book, you spent some time talking about how elusive legal marriage is for Rwandan women. Um, could you explain how big of a problem that is and what are some of the other top issues you're seeing in these countries today? Absolutely. I mean, just for those of you who don't know, and in Rwanda at the time, a marriage is defined as a, a civil marriage, meaning it's blessed by the government between a man and a woman. But there's all sorts of traditional marriages that are not sort of legally sanctioned. And because women, many women in the country were not legally married, they were not entitled to their rights, inheritance rights, you know, property rights, even custody rights. And so it's been a big challenge and a push by the Rwandan government to get women legally married. And you see this, frankly, not just in Rwanda, but in many other countries. Or you see the situations in places like Afghanistan where girls as young as 8, 9, 10 are being married off to older men to settle family debts. Um, you see also arranged marriages, particularly in places like South Sudan, where women have absolutely no choice in determining who and when um, and how they get married. And it's really kind of a cows for bride transaction. I, I talk about it in the book as being more of a business transaction, but of course, Early and child marriage are not the only issues facing women. Um, you know, we, we estimate that there's about a, will, a billion women and young girls who still need access to the education and skills they need to be able to participate in the labor market. You know that four out of five um, victims of human trafficking are girls. One in three women are victims of violence, sexual, psychological, domestic violence over their lifetime. Um, you still have instances where um, most of the African girls are getting married before their 15th birthday. Mm -hmm. But even other issues such as um, women doing the majority of unpaid care and domestic mm -hmm. labor, which we know really impacts their ability to engage in productive work, but also their overall empowerment and agency. Um, and we're still, still seeing a digital gender divide that is widespread across the world. So there are a lot of challenges. And I, I also don't mean to leave you and say that there hasn't been progress for women and girls, because there absolutely have. But there is also, as Hillary Clinton likes to say, a lot of unfinished business. Yeah. I know one part in your book you had in the, in the training session at one of the centers, they had the, the women kind of list out you know, what their roles were at home, and then their partners or husbands, what their roles were at home, and then realizing like how much value they have in that relationship and in using that to empower themselves to ask for their worth. Absolutely, I, I don't think women necessarily think about it. It's just you get up in the morning and they were listing out everything they do in a given day. And it's startling because you're talking about, this is South Sudan in the middle of a training session. I'm just setting the stage a little bit where a lot of the women are innumerate and illiterate. And so the visual image of this list making made a huge impact for the women. And so when they started sort of just, you know, what did you do all day? And it was like two pages for the women and the men's were like three lines. 
Um, and <laughs> they were like, um, you know, I think it's just women in a lot of societies suffer from this chronic sense of insufficiency. And I think we do in this country sometimes too, like I'm not doing enough, I need to be yeah. doing more. But I think to sort of the visual reminder of just how much you do every single day. Yeah, and we've seen this definitely here in, for the COVID-19 pandemic where we have women who disproportionately um, were forced out of the labor market, that's right? right. That's um, right. To care for school-aged children, for sick family members, um, because they personally are, are fear for their health. And we know that that has um, disproportionately impacted women in low-income jobs, right? So that's right. hospitality, retail, where women you know, make up a large portion of the labor sector. Um, so kind of like pulling into that question, how has COVID-19 impacted um, women and girls over in Rwanda? I, it's having some of the same impacts. You know, you're seeing more and more women dropping out of the labor force. And women empl women's employment rates were already pretty stagnant or on the decline globally. So basically, COVID exacerbated these disparities already. Um, and so that's been a huge challenge. And part of that is, yes, they're in lower paying jobs and in different sectors of work. But also part of it is that men have not been doing their fair share of the child and household responsibilities, which puts a disproportionate impact on women. So. So, and particularly in the United States, you know, we talk about women didn't necessarily want to drop out of the workforce. They felt forced to drop out of the workforce because they didn't have the means to, they didn't have childcare, the kids weren't in school, they had lower paying jobs. Um, many of them, as you said, in the social service sector, so it's a big issue. But you've also seen, um, and this is, this is pretty horrific, the devastating impact of COVID on girls. Um, I was uh, one of Akila's ambassadors is uh, the former president of Malawi, Joyce Banda, and I was on a call with her and she said, you know, 15,000 school age girls have become pregnant since the lockdown. Wow. Um, and those girls will never go back to school. In Kenya, 50,000 school age girls again have been the subject of rape um, because of successive lockdowns. And you have some parents who have had to force their teenage daughters into sex work because there's no money to support the family. And so you think about the girls and their futures, and once they're getting married or once this has happened to them, there's their lives in terms of their futures are really over. Yeah, that's really striking. And I, you know, we see a little bit of that in your book too about how women are often kind of working these, you know, low paying jobs, you know, on these farming, you know, jobs that just aren't making ends meet and they're forced to do things like that because they, they need to feed their families and they need to, to keep food on the table. Um, what, what can other uh, organizations, agencies do uh, to really improve the type of jobs that women are getting to make sure that they're able to provide for their families. And again, we see this a little bit here about how women just aren't able to make ends meet yeah. uh, because of the cost of childcare. Um, but we, we see this echoed. And again, your, your book is all kind of about parallels and um, how things, women are just everywhere working hard to just you know survive. That's right. Uh, so what kind of things can we do? I know you had talked about you know government aid and agencies. You made a really great example about um, uh, a, a bad company <laughs> that mm -hmm. was a kind of change the way they did business. Is there any promise there? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Um, I think putting more women into the formal employment sector versus informal employment would go a long way, obviously. You know, I think 
you know, what, what, what we see globally is that women are the first to be fired, the last to be rehired. Um, some of it is that they don't have enough status in the companies or they're informally employed. We've even seen that in Rwanda with some of our graduates who had great jobs, but when push came to shove and the economy was tanking due to COVID, they were the first to be laid off. And when the companies did want them back, they put them into contract jobs. So they were being paid hourly and they didn't have any benefits and they didn't have any support. And so I think really moving women into formal employment, higher paying or at least equal paying jobs would make a big difference. And then providing those supports that yeah. they need in terms of structural supports, you know, paid leave, yep. um, child care, obviously access to education for, yes. for folks. And then again, back to men doing their fair share um, of <laughs> the work and not just men, but boys too, learning early on that they are also responsible for contributing to the household. Yes. I have three sons, my boys know that very clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, um, I talk about in the book and I really believe this, it's about, you know, my, my goal was to, you know, raise good men and good global citizens yes. and I think you know for those of us who do have sons um, that that should be the expectation that you inculcate in them as they're growing up yeah and I mean this I, mean, I wanted to talk about this a little bit later but it, I should bring it up now is kind of uh, some of the policy solutions that were proposed in Rwanda to kind of uh, heal from the genocide that they saw and you know, for what, one example is the 30% uh, quota on government positions going to women and that they have far surpassed that quota. Um, but yet they're still seeing some of this kind of entrenched patriarchy still, you know, causing a lot of issues. Yeah. Is policy enough? No, never, actually. Um, my husband and I have this argument all the time. Pol <laughs> policy is a, a piece of the puzzle and it's important, but also you need, um, it's all about implementation and action. And what you see in Rwanda is such an interesting dichotomy. It's a fascinating country because it, it is a country that has put women at the top of the development mm -hmm. agenda. They have the highest percentage of women in parliament anywhere in the world, and yet you still have the majority of women working as subsistence farmers, earning less than $2 a day, and women having to take a back seat to their husbands at home. So you've got this interesting dichotomy there. And, and the government is really genuine in terms of wanting to put women forward. And some of that was, you know, post-genocide, the population became 70% female because so yeah. many men had died in the genocide or were incarcerated or in refugee camps mm -hmm. that women were the ones responsible for rebuilding their homes and their families and society. And so, but you still do have this entrenched patriarchy. And so the government has been leading, you know, public relations campaign, putting male advocates out there to help bring other men along and show them basically yeah. a different way of engaging with women. We have 50% of the population that we're not really talking about. And then when we talk about women's rights and women's advocacy, we often kind of, you know, treat the women in which we should be because they have been, you know, victimized in, in just such a disproportionate rate to men um, in, in the countries that you serve. But uh, we sh are we talking enough about men in this, no. in this situation? No, no. And, and in fact, um, 
I remember so clearly at you know Women for Women, the women would come up to us and say, it's so great that you're training us, but if you're not training our husbands, our brothers, our uncle, we're going back into the exact same dynamic and it's not enough. It was after that we really started a men's leadership program so men could hear from other men, from male leaders in their particular country context. They could be elders, um, or you know, tribal leaders or religious leaders, as, as in the case of Af Afghanistan, mm -hmm. or government leaders to really talk about how you behave with women. And I remember sitting in Nigeria after one of those training programs, and this, this man came up and he said, you know, I didn't know. I mean, this is the way my father treated my mother. This is the way his father treated his mother. And we didn't know there was a different way to treat women. And yeah. so, I mean, we assume that there's something maybe insidious or malicious or anything about that. But really, it, it may be just as simple as exposure to yeah. a different way. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about some issues, and this has become a, a hot topic. Um, globally about systemic uh, issues, systemic racism, systemic uh, uh, sexism, and I think that that is certainly at play here. And policy helps, right? It does, <laughs> it certainly and helps. it's important. And you know, it gives people something to hold on to. Absolutely. So, uh, policy is very important for setting the standard, and then it's a question of enforcement and and prevention. And that's where you see yeah. a big gap, and particularly when you're talking about you know, let's say gender policies, or um, let's say there's a police hotline, but women in rural areas might not know about it. They don't know they have particular rights. It's not enforced at a local level. So you see a big split between policy and practice, mm -hmm. which is where grassroots efforts really need to pick up and make yeah. sure that women know their rights, that they're able to access their rights. Yes. Um, I mean, pivoting a little bit, but you had mentioned Afghanistan, and I, I do want to take a moment to talk about Afghanistan here. Um, we, we've all seen the conflict coming out of the nation over the last three weeks, and uh, you have experience working there. In, you, in your book, you share a story about Sweda, and I would like uh, for you to share that story with us today. Sure. I'm, I mean, just like all of you, watched in horror with what was going on in Afghanistan and um, was really devastated. I mean, I spent several years going back and forth there and it's a country that I mean it has so much progress and incredible potential but never really realized and um, women in particular have made such good progress there over the last 20 years so it was really devastating to see. Now Suita is a woman that I worked with back in like 2006, 7, 8 um, and she was the Afghan country director of mm -hmm. Women for Women International at the time and you know she's working and the organization was working with some of the most marginalized women in the country. These are women who, some of who didn't know how old they were, they mm -hmm. didn't know the ages of their children, uh, most of them were illiterate and enumerate. Um, and really were some of the most marginalized women in the country. And so Sweden was really working on the front lines with this, these women to help them gain some new skills and build a better life. Um, and she called me and she told me that she had received a death threat. It was a letter that was delivered from the Taliban to our office to her attention, basically telling her that she needed to cease on her mm -hmm. anti-Islamic um, 
issues and activities because that they were they were providing misinformation to women and that if she continued her life um, and her destiny was in her own hands and that was followed by two phone calls from the Taliban directly to her and saying we know where you are we know what you're doing and threatening the life of her seven-year-old son and her in baby different locations girl. in different locations they yeah. knew everywhere they know where her parents were they knew where her family was they seemed to know where she was at all times and so um, I did what anybody would do which is try and get her the heck out of the country <laughs> yes. and really spent a month using every political connection I could think of to try and get her into the country the, as you can imagine, though, post 9-11, and I know we're just celebrating yeah. that um, milestone. Yeah. I, I, celebrating is the wrong word. Yeah. Commemorating, <laughs> Commemorating the milestone. But um, they were letting few Afghans into the country because they were obviously looking to flag potential terrorists. And so it was very, very difficult. But we, in, in the end, managed to get Suita and her two children um, into the United States. And then um, her, her husband was able to come over too. And this recent um, I Stand with Afghan Women March on the White House, Suita was out there with her bullhorn, really trying to make sure that her sisters in Afghanistan were not forgotten. But, you know, obviously you're not going to be able to airlift your way out of this challenge. You're not yeah. going to be able to bring enough people anywhere to this country or any other country for refuge. So it's really a question of what can we do now to support Afghan women? Yeah, because Suida is one woman, and, and it ended very positively hearing that she's in DC trying to still make change uh, for her, her sisters and her, her family over in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, one quote in your book that really stood out to me that I like clacked away on my laptop and was I, I need to bring this up today was, it was always one step forward and three steps back. Our small gains practically wiped out with each new surge. And you think you were talking about, was it South Sudan? It was about Congo. Congo, yeah. And uh, that really resonated with the situation in Afghanistan right now. And a lot of uh, folks here um, had a feeling that it would eventually turn, but not as quick as it had. Um, so seeing what you're seeing, what is happening there now, uh, how are you feeling, and what are you hearing from your your colleagues that are still in this work? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, having been around the block a few times and really seeing a lot of these protracted conflicts in places yeah. like Afghanistan and Congo and South Sudan, I mean, they may not be in hot conflict all the time, but they're like a trigger away. Yeah, um, and I know people were saying oh, the government's not going to fall for 6, 12, 18 months. But, you know, when the government falls and the army feels unprotected, it was just a matter of time before that happened. And I just feel like we collectively, the world community, has done such a disservice to places like Afghanistan. And I think everybody's talking about Afghanistan now the same way that everybody was talking about Syria and then everybody mm -hmm. was talking about Congo and South Sudan and the Boko thing Haram. or exactly <laughs> and the thing is once the cameras turn off and people turn away and they invariably do because life is busy people get distracted it's really hard to keep your attention on one conflict that's when I really worry because yeah. people aren't going to be paying attention and so 
I, I think it, it just, what I know about this kind of work, it takes a sustained level of effort and attention, not to be able to do this work ourselves, but to make sure the people on the ground aren't forgotten, that mm -hmm. they have the tools, the resources, the support they need to be able to help themselves. And that's what I see for Afghan women. You know, there's only going to be so much that we can do, and really it's going to take Afghan women and men working together if they want a different outcome for their country, they're going to have to make that happen with the, the tools and support that we can offer them. Yeah, and I think that's what made um, the Women for Women Center and some of the other centers uh, and that you've been working with in various countries really successful is how the training cohorts were set up, like as cohorts. It may be kind of touching a little bit uh, right now on kind of that social network, that ingrained social network that these training programs put in, and how is that important? Yeah, you know, I think what you see in war and conflict, particularly in places like Congo, where, you know, two million um, women have been raped over the country's protracted war. I mean, think about two million women raped. It's such a staggering number. Mm -hmm. Um, and what, what, you, what you have in instances like that is a deep sense of shame and isolation among the women. They're not the perpetrators, but they have to walk around with this. And some of their families have abandoned them because of the stigma associated with that. So we used to have women coming to the program in Congo that were so traumatized, they literally could not say their names out loud. Think wow. about that. Um, and so this idea of coming together in these training groups of 25 where women are able to get comfortable and just have a sense of emotional support where you can share your story in a safe place. And it's really a lifeline for many of these women. And what we have found, certainly not just in Congo, is the actual grouping of the women together is just as important as the training that they're receiving themselves. And there's something about the dynamic too. I remember hearing this story in Nigeria where um, this, this women's group got together and one of the women was being beaten by her husband. Yes. And so, so the women <laughs> got together, all of them, and they marched over to this guy's house and said, if you're beating her, you're gonna have to beat all of us because mm -hmm. that's what's going to happen. And sort of that sense of what we used to say at Women for Women, you know, one woman can change many things, but many women can change everything. Yes. This idea that there is strength in numbers. And so whether it's, you know, cooperative development, like the brick-making cooperative that made the 500,000 bricks for the Women's Opportunity Center to the agricultural co-ops to the professional networks and, you know, in this country, too, even, you know, the book clubs and the other ways that women come together to support each other, all of that is really important. Yeah, and you mentioned the, the 500,000 bricks. Um, I mean, that I think that's the source of the name of your, <laughs> your right. book. They literally were building this center brick by brick, quite literally. Right. Uh, and um, what was the name of your participant there who was managing the, the Angelique. Brick? Angelique. She, um, absolutely incredible story. And to see how she not only empowered herself by starting this this brick uh, business, which is a traditionally what male-centered business, correct? That's right. And um, just really revolutionized it, and even hired people 
and almost created her little mini ecosystem oh, yeah. for, for well, women. And then she went to this Goldman Sachs training and got trained in sort of business management and started all sorts of reciprocal businesses and put her kids through private school. And so um, that's why the book is called Brick by Brick, because it, it is, it's literally brick by brick, but also a metaphor about how women can rebuild and build their lives a brick at a time. And I mean, you see that over and over with survivors, but um, pretty much true for a lot of women everywhere. Yeah, and we're seeing some of the women come together too right now in Afghanistan. I know some of them have been standing up, um, you know, making sure that they don't want things to go back to how they were. Um, do you see it being a little different this time around? I hope so. I really do. I, I think it's a good sign that women are not just going to their homes and hoping for the best, that they're on the streets. Um, and they're demanding their rights. I think it's going to take men and women working together as well as pressure from the international community to try and make change. And I, I'm, I suspect it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. Mm -hmm. But I also, um, I think the change, what I have seen is, you know, systemic change isn't going to come from outside. It's going to come from within. Yes. And, you know, even your sweetas and others that I've talked to, you know, we don't, they were saying, you know, we, don't ex we didn't expect America to stay forever. Mm -hmm. We know that we need to take care of and lead our own country. We just didn't like the way the withdrawal was handled. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about the best of intentions, right? So we have uh, a long trail of, of stories of organizations, NGOs, missionaries, et cetera, going into these uh, war-torn uh, countries that are in conflict and uh, just not really understanding what's happening, understanding the culture, uh, the people, uh, the systems that are in place, and really just making it worse. <laughs> uh, do you have any examples of best practices uh, for organizations, groups, or individuals who want to generally make a difference, a yeah. positive difference? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, it starts out quite well-meaning on the part of people who want to make a difference in their life. I, I think, though, that sometimes um, well-meaning donors, though, can push for, you know, quick impact projects, including the U.S. government. Quick impact projects make a difference, spend down the pipeline, you know, go ask mm -hmm. for more money um, without really thinking about the implications of their work. And what they often fail to do is they tend to plop in a bunch of expatriates and set it all up and show people that this is what's working. But it wasn't working because it wasn't designed by local people. It didn't have the right input from local people. There wasn't a, the level of ownership that there needed to be from those people. Um, and <laughs> because of that, what you see littered across countrysides all over the world are defunct projects projects that start out with a lot of hope and a lot of potential, but ended up just being a sign there with nothing else there. Um, and it's not only depressing, I believe that it's destructive because you've raised expectations that something in fact is going to be different and then you leave. And so um, I actually just read this piece um, which you'll appreciate, which was about sort of white women in international development, which was really good. Um, and it was written by a black woman who is in the global health sector. And she said, basically, to white women, such as myself, you know, check your privilege, mm -hmm. <laughs> give up your privilege regularly, 
um, check your biases, yes. and also uh, forge real allyship with those who are on the ground. You don't have to do it. You don't have to lead it. You can support it. Mm -hmm. um, and I just think that's really good advice, frankly, um, whatever your nationality, whatever your color, to really have that approach and that level of humility um, and honesty and integrity when you're approaching this development work. Yeah, and understanding there needs to be trust too, right? It, absolutely, and, and frankly, you know, top down doesn't work. It, yeah. it never did. We just kind of realized that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, so I, I wanted to actually take a little bit of time to talk about you know, your work now with the Aquila Institute. Um, you, know, you spent your year in Rwanda, and um, now you're you're back there serving as president for this this only the, the only women's college uh, in uh, in Rwanda. Maybe talk about what is different with the approach of Aquila Institute versus the work that you had done in the past. Yeah, well, and I it's interesting because when I think about the young women who come to Aquila, they I, I think of them as kind of the proverbial daughters of the women for women women that we were serving <laughs> in the sense that. You know, it was really their mothers who sacrificed everything for their daughters to be able to have an education, a college education, and a mm -hmm. pathway to a better life. And um, the demographic for these students at Aquila, over 50% of them come from rural areas, 78% of their first in their families to go to college. College was a big dream for them. They never assumed that that would happen. And so it's really meaningful to these young women. And so. What we did differently is rather than starting with the supply, which is this idea that so many girls need education, we started with the demand, which was the private sector and the skills gap in the labor market, and we worked backwards to make sure that the education that we were offering was market relevant so yes. that when these young women graduated, um, with a high quality education that they would be able to transition directly into the workforce. And, it's, and we mm -hmm. did that with the majors that we were offering, hospitality management, sustainable tourism, information systems or IT, and then small business management and entrepreneurship, which really was a catch-all for a lot of different industries. And so... Which is also one of the more lucrative industries it in, is. in the area, too, and, and Exactly. And so... Um, and this, this is a pre-COVID statistic, but 86% of our graduates uh, secured job within six months of graduation, and we're earning about four times the national median income. Wow. But here's the kicker. They were also, 90% of them were paying for health care or school fees for other family members. Yep. So you're really seeing them pay the Multiplying effect. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is why, again, education and income, to me, is the recipe for lasting change. Yeah, which is why it's so important and kind of the whole crux of your book of why it's important to you know, fight for and defend women and to invest uh, in, their, in their lives and making sure that they have the means and to earn an income. Mm -hmm. um, you, I know you had mentioned that was one of the uh, key things to ensuring that a country succeeds is a woman earning an income. Absolutely. I like to say this, while um, education gives women voice, it's the income piece that gives women choice. Yes. You know, choices around how money is saved and spent, choices if a woman is suffering from violence or abuse in the family, choices about keeping their daughters in school. It's primarily the women who are paying the school mm -hmm. fees. Um, and so when a woman is earning an income, she can keep those girls in school longer. And we know when they're in school longer, they're earning higher wages. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, yes, and as you said, the, the statistic from earlier, at least likely to uh, get pregnant and then continue their careers, yeah, this, it all goes for full circle. Uh, today at the City Club, we're listening to a forum in our Authors in Conversation series featuring Karen Sherman, author of Brick by Brick, Building Hope and Opportunity for Women Survivors Everywhere. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our live stream or the radio broadcast on 90.3 IdeaStream Public Media. Now, if you have a question here in the audience, we ask that you first raise your hand to be acknowledged. Please wait in your seat until a City Club staffer motions you over to the designated microphone stand to ask your question. If you are unable to walk to the microphone, a City Club staffer will come to you. As usual, if you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it to at the City Club. You can also text them to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and our staff will try to work it in the program. Supervising the microphone today is Bliss Davis, Content and Programming Coordinator. May we have the first question, please? <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> Getting back to the question I asked you earlier, do you think immigration reform would help these women? Uh, I take it you would like to see more women be able to come to the U.S., but it's not the total answer. They must learn to do things at their home, right? Yeah, I, from I think it's a it's a discrete part of the solution. But what I see being even more important is women being enabled to make change in their own societies. I think. It's really, even with open immigration or immigration reform, you're talking about a drop in the bucket in terms of people being able to leave their country um, and make change in another place. And I'm, I'm thrilled for all the young women and older women who were able to leave Afghanistan. But I think about all those women who are remaining in Afghanistan and you know the would-be doctors and engineers and athletes and what is their future going to be like. And, and then also the marginalized and, and poor women who would never, ever have been on an airlift to begin with and don't really warrant the attention or the protection of the American government or any government. And so when I think about systemic change, it's really happening in those countries themselves. Good afternoon. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, I appreciated your comments about um, being advised to check your privilege and check your bias. And you know, uh, people of color have not always had very positive relationships with white people. So when you, here's a, a white lady going into this African nation, how do you, what steps do you take to build that trust yeah. uh, when those relationships haven't always been very positive? No, it's such a great question. Um, I spent a lot of time listening <laughs> and uh, not talking, uh, mm -hmm. taking a lot of notes. Um, I, if you saw all the notebooks I've collected, it's just so many notes. So I think. Um, making sure that whoever I'm working with in any country, um, that they feel heard and listened to, and that their ideas 
uh, have resonance and value, that I'm not coming in in any kind of top-down way, but to really think about my role as being a catalytic one to support, to assist, to garner resources, to advocate, to maybe provide new tools and resources that were not at their disposal. But when I think about norm change or any kind of change, and even as we talked about sustainable development projects, it is those folks on the ground, black or white, leading that change. Yeah, I think I just really quick, if I could squeeze in here. Um, I, I know that you had talked about a little bit uh, of where, um, where people can be most helpful, like when the cameras turn off, uh, where, they, where they should be more tapped in. Where are those places they can go to become more educated and uh, inform themselves and also be more effective in their advocacy, like as you said? Yeah. I mean, I, there's, a, there's a number of organizations who are doing really wonderful work on the ground, again, when the cameras have turned away. And I would really seek out, it may not be Afghanistan, it may be another country, but, uh, or it may be another issue. I mean, I, we're not single-tracked. And you know, I know that for myself, um, I've worked on everything from not just education, but human trafficking, violence against women, um, any number of issues. And so whatever your your thing is that moves you to want to do more, to take action, find those resources out there. Um, there's an organization called Interaction in Washington, D.C., and they're kind of a clearinghouse of organizations that work all over the world on all different issues. Um, mm. My son works on global health issues and is very interested in reproductive rights. Um, my other son is very interested in you know, bridge building and access to markets and schools and other things for people who don't have, who are isolated in isolated communities. So I think everybody has their, their thing, their bent, but, but to stay involved, pick yeah. those things that are important to you and, and to try and make a difference. We all have computers in our pocket, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, when, when, uh, when something new comes to light, the first thing I do is, like, Google it. Yeah. Yep. Let like me Google that for you, .com. <laughs> uh, go ahead. Yes, thank you for the work that you're doing. Um, I wonder if you comment, since the withdrawal from Afghanistan, I've heard a number of interesting discussions about the, the urban-rural differences in these countries, just as we have very uh, significant differences here between uh, attitudes and values, um, patriarchy in rural versus urban areas. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I've, part of that discussion has uh, touched on how uh, women in rural parts of Afghanistan are not that eager about getting education and moving into employment. What they're concerned about is their families, the effect of the war, um, members who have died. So I'm wondering if you might comment on that, if you've seen these kinds of differences. Yeah, it's a great question. Absolutely, I have. And, you know, we sort of have this point in time of, you know, before Taliban and then after Taliban and then now with the Taliban again. But even after the Taliban in, in 2001, um, when there was a different kind of government, you still had 
a major split between urban and rural. And Sweeta, the woman we were talking about, she likes to talk about two Afghanistans, you know, one in Kabul or the capital areas where women are gaining access to education, political and economic opportunities, and then really sort of what's happening in remote areas where women, you know, are not allowed to study or work or even really to stand on their own. And what I don't know, and I, and I, uh, is, is that by choice or is that by opportunity? Because what I can say in Afghanistan is you get, the farther you get from Kabul, um, it's so much more restrictive um, and the rights of women are not protected at all. So is it that they don't want those things or they've never had access to those things and can't ask for them? Of course, they're motivated to be able to support their families um, and, and that makes perfect sense. But I think part of the issue is really just the lack of exposure um, to some of the things that women in more urban areas have, have access to. But one of the, the most startling statistics around Afghanistan, and this is not a Taliban statistic, is that 87% of Afghan women have experienced at least some form of abuse, about 50% of, of them at home. So I do suspect that what you're seeing is um, really repressed desire in uh, many of these areas where women are not allowed to move, speak, and participate freely. And thank you. Uh, my question goes back to something you mentioned earlier about how you thought raising your sons and how can we, you know, raise strong, respectable men. I work in child abuse and sexual assault, and that's always something that comes up is like, what can we do for the future? Is it education? Is it X, Y, Z? And, you know, we come back to a lot. It's, it's raising children, raising the next generation to maybe think differently than us. And I was just wondering if you could speak uh, it's a loaded question, but how have you done this? And you know, how uh, do you see the work you're doing? Other people maybe also doing this work, and how they're raising this next generation to maybe um, you know not make the mistakes that we have in the past. Yeah, thank you. no, thank you. You know, it's hard. I mean, I you know I raised my kids in Bethesda, Maryland, so I, I have to say, and and it was hard. I mean, it was one of the reasons that when I moved to Rwanda, I wanted to yank them out of Bethesda and take them to a different place and show them a different way that people live and also just how much they have that they take for granted, as we all do, including myself, every single day. Um, and I realized that not everybody is able to take their children and move to Rwanda with them, but I think there there are people in every society, I'm sure there are people in this city who live very differently than the people in this room here today. And I think that you can always show your children a different way to think, to experience, to see. Because, you know, the most extreme form of otherness is what happened during the genocide in Rwanda, where people were otherized all the time. And so, because there was no empathy, no understanding. I, I could not see those people, and so we can dehumanize them. They're less than human. So what we need to do as parents, as educators, as activists, as people who care about these issues is to humanize them, to make sure that people really see 
what's around them. And I remember this, this statistic when I was doing a lot of work in the former Soviet Union. There was a public opinion poll taken at this, the time. It's the middle of the Cold War. And the public opinion poll was um, interviewing Americans. And the majority of Americans said that they thought that Soviet people loved their children less. Can you imagine that they loved their children less? Because the Cold War had framed that whole dialogue that we've otherized them. How could they possibly love their children as much as we love our children? But we do that all the time in big and small ways. So I think for children, and, and you're raising good men and citizens, don't let them otherize. Thank you. I just wanted to know like, how you became so interested in working with women and in such a global scale. Yeah, I, I feel like I got really lucky. <laughs> I've, um, I ended up moving to Washington, D.C. right after I did my undergraduate work and uh, happened to uh, end up going to the Geneva Summit Talks and meeting General Secretary Gorbachev when everything was changing in the former Soviet Union. You know, I was like 22 years old, and uh, I just became enamored with what was happening in that country and that transformation. And then when I started doing work there, when everything had collapsed, the political system had collapsed, the economy collapsed, it was really the women who were really working to build up their societies. I was running a microcredit program out in the Russian Far East, um, in the late 1990s, and you know, we'd have these men come in and they'd say, you know, I've got this great project and I need a million dollars and it's gonna be great. <laughs> and then these women would come in and say, I've got this great project and I need $50 and I can start this thing and I can create this business. And I mean like, but you know, who are you gonna bet on, right? You're gonna bet on the women because brick by brick, step by step, they're making that change, and I have seen that play out in every single country context that I've ever ever worked. It's not that I don't like and appreciate men, but when I think about mm -hmm. real change agents and the, those with the greatest multiplier effect, hands down, it's the women. If I could squeeze in here once more, too, I wanted to talk about feminism, and our, our one question uh, a little bit earlier touched on that a little bit about how is there a rural, um, you know, urban divide, and you mentioned that feminism is not a monolith. It, it, it differed from country to country, woman to woman. Context, again, was everything. Yeah. Just maybe really quickly touch on what that means to you. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> the American brand of feminism, for example, um, and even somebody like myself, doesn't resonate in a lot of countries. You know, a lot of people think American women are too bold, they're too out there, they're too this. But it doesn't mean that they're not advocating for themselves and for women. It just doesn't necessarily look like our brand of feminism. And so I think what I have learned about this work, and it, it goes back to this question about, um, you know, how do you go into a country? You have to meet women where they are not where you want yeah. them to be or where you think they should be. And so, you know, some people, when they look at Afghanistan, they, look at, they only look at the burqa and they, yes. see, they see that's, 
you know, we got to get rid of the burqa because it's anti-feminist. The women are, might say, that's the least of our problems, frankly. <laughs> you know, we want, we want to go have an education. We want to be able to move freely. If moving freely means I have to wear the burqa, great. But, you know, you might come in with an, a different lens and say, that's the way it should be. Um, and even, you know, I've heard from a lot of women across Africa, too, saying, you know, we approach feminism very differently. We're not confrontational with our husbands. Mm -hmm. We actually get a lot farther if we do it in a different way. So I just think there, there isn't a brand of feminism. And I think, like anything, context and mm -hmm. culture matter. Absolutely. Raj? Well, thank you very much, first of all, for coming to Cleveland and doing this address. I've been impressed with a lot of the stuff you've said, all of it, really. And uh, I'm also impressed with the, uh, the expertise and empathy you show with intercultural situations. Seems you have a pretty good understanding of how to communicate with somebody from a different culture. And I think that's very important, in, especially when you go overseas. Okay. My, uh, in, in all your remarks, you've said how, and thanks for all the work you're doing for women. But you always have said that uh, that men are a critical part of the change. So I have a very practical question for you. My question is, in your college in Rwanda or elsewhere, are you doing anything to educate the men about the dangers of the gender dynamics they are engaged in and how bad it is for them and for their children's future and for society in large? So it'll be, I think it, it's a natural follow-up in terms of Okay, so we're doing everything we can to educate women. That's great, I think. That's wonderful. And please don't ever stop. But maybe you'll expand a little bit and say, okay, can we talk to the men and explain to them some of the downfall of what their behavior is? Yeah. That is a fantastic question and a great segue, which is that in 2020, um, you know, we launched Davis College, which is our co-ed offering exactly for that reason. Because, you know, same thing as the women would say, well, it's great that you're training us, but if you're not training our brothers and our uncles and our fathers, mm -hmm. you're, you're not really making that level of change. We would hear from the girls who would come to Aquila, young women who would come to Aquila, and they would say, well, what about our cousins and our uncles and our brothers? And what about their education? And so we started this college, which was a co-ed offering to be able to take men and women together, as well as having our all women's college to be able to do that very thing. And we worked really hard to create a gender responsive pedagogy. So we really worked backwards to take some of the secret sauce of Aquila and bring it into Davis College to really be able to do what I did as a mother, which is to create you know, good men who really understand sort of the gender dynamics and where it's really positive and where it might be destructive so that when they go out into the world too, as they're getting jobs and starting families, that they're thinking about those things. Right. We need a comprehensive approach of 100% of the population. That's right. Yes. That's right. All right. Well, today at the City Club, we have been listening to a forum, part of our Authors in Conversation series, featuring Karen Sherman, author of Brick by Brick, Building Hope and Opportunity for Women Survivors Everywhere. We welcome guests at tables hosted by Beaumont School and our strategy group. We're happy to have you here. 
Today's forum is the Nathu Agarwal and Roy Blackburn Forum. It's established in memory of Mr. Agarwal and Mr. Blackburn, who set inspiring examples and exhibited a lifelong commitment to education, in particular, women's and girls' education. We are grateful for the support of City Club and member Raj Agarwal and his family who have made this annual forum possible. Be sure to join us next Friday, September 17th. We will be speaking with Michael Deemer, President and CEO of the Downtown Cleveland Alliance. He will be in conversation with City Club CEO Dan Mothrop about how Downtown Cleveland has fared over the last year and the priorities that will move our city's center forward in this new era of leadership. Tickets are still available for this forum and you can purchase them and learn more about our other forums at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you, Karen thank Sherman. You. And thank you, members, friends of the City Club. This forum is now adjourned. Thank you. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.